everybody, it's James Rudd with The Heart Podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Karen Stout. Karen is the Associate Chief of Cardiology at the Cardiology Clinics at University of Washington Medical Center and is a Professor of Cardiology and also an Adjunct Professor of Pediatric Cardiology. Uh, Importantly, Karen has been tasked with organizing the response to the COVID-19 virus in terms of how it affects patients with heart problems. And we have a long discussion about how she's been able to prepare her workforce and think about how to redesign workflows, how she treats patients who have ongoing heart problems without COVID-19 in this unique uh, healthcare situation. I really hope you enjoy the podcast. Maybe we could just start, Karen, by having you introduce yourself, uh, where you work and what do you do? My name is Karen Stout. I'm a cardiologist at the University of Washington in Seattle. My original job is that I developed the Adult Congenital Heart Disease Program at the University of Washington in Seattle Children's Hospital, so I've worked for both or worked for both. But my primary role these days is the Associate Chief of Cardiology for the Division of Cardiology at the University of Washington for the adult cardiology side and the Service Chief, or seemingly the person to keep the trains running on time, at the University of Washington Medical Center, which is the quaternary cardiac hub of our health system, and actually of the region. And I understand you have a special interest in uh, grown-up congenital heart disease or adult congenital heart disease, and also uh, transplant patients. Um, I'm involved in transplant insofar as it's uh, aligned with congenital heart disease and specifically adult congenital heart disease. Um, I have chaired a scientific statement on heart failure in congenital heart disease with the Cyan, or with the uh, American Heart Society or Heart, heart Society American Heart Association, um, and then did the ACHD guidelines. So facile with both of those reasonably well. I, I would definitely not say I'm a transplant cardiologist, but I get to hang out with them a whole lot. <laughs> and we're recording this on the 19th of March, uh, 2020. And I don't normally announce the date of recording, but because we're going to talk a little bit about COVID-19 and the situation is changing uh, almost hour by hour, I thought it's worth putting a timestamp here. But Karen, I know you've been um, tasked with uh, helping to lead the, some of the response in Seattle to COVID-19 and as far as it affects specific types of, of cardiac patients. Maybe you can just start off by painting us a picture of what things are like there generally um, in terms of COVID-19. Sure. So for those who aren't familiar, Seattle, uh, the area, Kirkland is a suburb of ours, was the primary hub, first death, first outbreak in the U.S. of COVID. And so we have become the Seattle area in particular um, seemingly, I've heard the phrase on the front lines, but really, I think we're just going to be ahead of the curve. So in the Seattle area, we have multiple hospitals, and we have two right now that are exceedingly full of patients with COVID-19. And it's remarkable what exceedingly full looks like. That's like 20 to 50 patients with the disease. It's not, it doesn't take much to fill up a hospital. So what, we, what we've seen so far is that the primary hospital, the one that had all the news around it, Evergreen Hospital, um, in talking anecdotally with their intensivists and cardiologists, they've kind of had to cordon off half the hospital as just being a COVID hospital, if you will. Um, and same thing with the emergency room. And then they try to do business in the rest of their hospital. But what we've seen here, when I first 
kind of got involved with trying to organize our response, quite honestly, we spent a bunch of intellectual effort early on saying, oh my gosh, what are the cardiac co complications of this disease? How are we going to prepare for that? And how are we going to prepare for what COVID looks like in our patients who have heart disease, including our kind of special populations that are not reported well yet, such as transplant, uh, super advanced heart failure, some of the structural heart disease things we do, and our adult congenital heart disease patients. And after spending some energy on that and talking with the doctors who are um, have a lot of patients in their hospitals, it became fairly evident that it, we're just sort of reminded what we've already heard. This is primarily a pulmonary disease. This disease is marked by horrible ARDS when it gets really bad, and there does seem to be a cardiac collapse component that can develop um, later in the disease course, sometimes in patients who had started to recover and then seemed to end up with, um, whether it's an immune response or just a systemic inflammatory response, end up with a cardiac collapse amidst multi-organ system failure, usually towards the end of, of they had started to recover from their lung disease and then this happened. There's also some percentage that um, have a cardiac collapse during their, the worst of their illness in the setting of multi-organ system failure. And then there's these case reports of myocarditis and the like. So when we were preparing for the, oh, cardiac complications, I reached out to my cardiology partners at the affected hospitals, and they said, you know, we're really not getting called very often because this is so clearly the cardiac things are, are this acute end. And I think the thing that is important that I've learned is that both of those hospitals, that both of the hospitals in town who have a fair number of patients at this point, particularly Evergreen, have those because they have local relationships with nursing homes. And so the nursing home population is what they mostly have. What we haven't seen yet is what the general population, at least in Seattle, is necessarily going to look like. Our emergency rooms are starting to get extremely full, and we are day by day increasing the census in each hospital of the number of patients who are either COVID positive or are, um, are being tested. Um, and the COVID positive patients, some of them really, the ARDS they can get is really striking. Uh, we have seen that each hospital who takes care of these patients has had deaths. Um, and it's a, it's, you know, to watch it march on is a fairly terrifying thing. Um, so from the cardiac complications piece, we're still trying to educate ourselves and learn as much as we can and set some protocols that everybody in our system can embrace because the downside of just ordering tests is then you need to react to them and going into a COVID positive patient's room and subjecting your sonographer or your ECG tech or your consulting service to the exposure risks that go with that and the use of PPE, you know, nobody has a great supply of personal equipment right now. So we have to be really thoughtful about conserving those. So all of those knee jerk things that you would do of like, yeah, just order a troponin, just order a BNP. You really have to be thoughtful about, oh, well, what am I going to do with that if it's abnormal? Um, and how are we going to handle that? So in the specific care planning of the patients and what to expect, that's sort of where we are and where we've been. I think really what I learned is that most of the energy and effort that we've spent so far has been in preparation, in preparation to absorb a bunch of patients that we aren't used to, um, to have to displace patients we are used to taking care of, and how are we going to make sure they get their care. And then what are we gonna do when our workforce is out um, and we have to fill in the gaps. And that's really where I think the initial attraction of intellectual energy is towards the, the patients with the disease and how can we deal with that. But I really think that what everybody needs to make sure that they're doing is preparing for 
a larger number of patients than you've seen and having many of your workforce out and unable to care for patients. And how are you going to handle that? Because that ain't something we got to play with for. That's very easy. Right. And I think in the UK, we are probably about seven to 10 days perhaps behind you guys in Seattle. Um, although London is rapidly mm-hmm. catching up, I'm hearing today. And certainly in our hospital in Cambridge, we've done exactly what you've said uh, in terms of dividing the place in, into two COVID positive or, or suspected COVID positive and then everything else. But um, do you have any pearls to, to share of uh, maybe for the managers listening to this podcast of how you've managed to to do that and the decisions you've made in terms of backup workforce, people who can maybe come onto the roster that haven't been on the roster for a while and how you go about managing your your precious resources in terms of uh, PPE and staff and, and everything else? Um, those are all great questions. So what I'm going to say is going to sound like, oh, this is really easy, but it took us a little while to get there. The first thing that I think is most important is how totally awesome my colleagues, partners, and the, the healthcare workforce are in general. Um, everybody is seeing this as, yep, this is our job. We got to step up. We got to do it. We are not going to be the ones to run. How can I help? Um, and so one thing that I've had the great luxury of so far is um, everybody just saying, put me in, coach. Where do you need me? And so what I ended up doing for our division, our cardiology faculty, which includes uh, MDs, DOs, as well as uh, a large number of nurse practitioners and hospitalists, is I asked everybody to tell me what coverage they felt comfortable providing. Um, and it's super, super simple things. We're an academic medical center. Um, like, can you put in orders in the electronic medical record? Because many of us attendings actually can't because the nurse practitioners, hospitalists, and, and fellows all do it or the residents do it. And so we're not very facile with that. So some simple things of if you had to go in and be the only person taking care of a patient, can you do it? And if not, what gaps do we need to fill? So being able to set up that kind of training. So I asked everybody to tell me what are you willing or willing and able to cover um, and listed kind of everything we might need. And then everybody sent me back their their availability and willingness. Um, I tried not to intrude on pre-planned time out, even though vacation now didn't mean going anywhere. And people have said, I'm supposed to be on vacation, but if you need me, call me. Um, and so I tried not to compete with like clinic, even though clinic isn't happening now, but we still want to leave people the opportunity or at least it is happening, but just not very much in person. It's mostly telehealth. So I want to leave people opportunities to keep doing their clinics. And then I just made a, what we're basically calling a jeopardy schedule, like all of us were used to having in training, um, where I've got a whole batch on any given day. There's actually 10 people who are available to step in and cover things uh, as we need. Um, And that's independent of any of the individual coverage that people are finding for themselves. So one of my interventionalists had to step out um, because he got symptoms and he just called a couple of his partners to cover what he was doing. So independent of the the kind of subspecialty and other self-management of getting coverage that's happening, I have a list of 10 people on any given day who can step in and provide coverage and they've given me enough details that I can tell what they are and aren't going to be easily plugged into and can plug accordingly. And so far we've had to do some of that and I'm definitely getting an uptick um, and it's all because of the very stringent, if you have any URI symptoms, um, you stay home. And so it's flu season, it's cold season, and here in Seattle, it's seasonal allergy season. And so people are being diligent, but it does usually take them out for three to five days while we await test results and make sure that they're asymptomatic. Um, so planning that workforce is 
I haven't had to like make anybody do anything yet. And I don't think I'll have to because the, the spirit of this is what we do has been really robust. But there is a component of there are faculty members and physicians, nurse practitioners, hospital, whatever, and who have they themselves either fit in a high risk group of having severe COVID complications or they have family members at home who do. So I did actually also make sure that everybody who is themselves high risk or has high risk family members um, to let me know and then I'll make assignments accordingly. So as an example, if I had somebody who is in that high risk group in some way and I either need echoes read or I need somebody to go up and round on the general cardiology ward service, the person who's high risk is going to go read echoes so that I'm distributing the labor as best I can to protect the people who need protecting um, and try to minimize their exposure risk. We're also consolidating as much clinical care as we can to let people be home um, some number of days a week so that they are not getting exposed and hopefully preserving a healthy workforce. And if we flatten the curve and in you know two to three weeks or whatever it is, we're okay and we can just let people go back at it, then great, that all worked. But if not, then I hopefully have a reasonably deep bench that I can still keep tapping into of people who haven't been overly exposed outside of all the social distancing and everything closed here that we have. All of our restaurants and bars are closed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And schools have been closed for two weeks. And are you managing to get uh, so, testing on uh, on colleagues and, and, and nurses and doctors that you think might be infected? Is that is that an issue for you to be able to rule yeah. in or rule out? It isn't an issue for us, but that is an unusual situation in the U.S. on the whole and uh, very specifically to our region. UW Medicine happened to have an extraordinary virology lab. And the minute they got wind of this virus and illness and everything else, they started ramping up their ability to test for it and made a, as I, as I understand it, I'm speaking from having read emails, but um, they petitioned um, the federal government to be able to test. And so we've actually been able to test for it for three weeks plus, three weeks, months, something like, very early on. We were, it was us and the feds, were there, or the Department of Health were the only two places. So we have been able to test people. We have a drive-through, um, we were like the, they had us featured for a while because I think it was one of the earlier in the US drive-through testing things where you like drive your car up to a tent and somebody in, you know, full on protective gear comes out, stuffs the swab up your nose, takes the sample and then you drive away. So we've been doing that for weeks. Uh, the tests on faculty, staff, healthcare workers who work in our system are usually turned around within 36 to 48 hours, um, often within 24, but 36 to 48 is the standing right now. And then um, the um, patients we've also been able to test and those turn around typically same day, um, but within 24 hours. If Like if you order it late at night, you'll get it the next day. Um, and I think that they are ramping up the amount, number of tests they can do um, by large, you know, doubling and then some on pretty short order. Um, so um, we should be able to both get test results back more quickly and do more of them. Fantastic. And how are you coping with uh, the significantly, often very significantly ill population of of regular cardiac patients, should we call them, you know, the, the outpatient visits, the, the patients who need, you know, treatment for decompensated heart failure, et cetera. How are you managing to to stay on top of that workload? You talked about going, you talked about going to phone, phone consultations, telemedicine, that yeah. kind of thing. And so we, um, we didn't have the cardiology group um, and many of the subspecialists were not set up to do telehealth. It's not a super common thing in, in 
you know, urban centers like ours just yet. So we have all been fast-tracked to being able to do it. Um, we also had those, you know, we were getting sort of evolving um, recommendations from various high-end sources. We started out by asking all of the patients at high risk for COVID comorbidities to not come in to minimize their risk. And then much more recently have expanded that to just say, if the benefit of showing up and being seen in person outweighs the potential risk to both patients and healthcare workers, then bring them in. And so we've been doing that with the sick heart failure patients. Um, some of the need to be in certain, seen in person transplant or adult congenital heart disease patients or some of those. Um, any of the elective folks who are truly elective, we are giving the opportunity to do phone visits or uh, a reschedule with the acknowledgement that rescheduling them for, you know, four to six weeks from now may not, may also then get rescheduled. Um, we've asked all the providers to kind of put, it's really hard when you're looking at any given patient to decide, is this person, do they really need to be seen right now or not? And one of the criteria we are using for both clinical visits and procedures, because we really needed to free up as much as we can. We need beds and we need providers. So doing a bunch of elective PCIs um, isn't necessarily how we should be using our resources. So we asked, or like AFib ablations. So all of our proceduralists and all of the cardiologists took a look and still do at their schedules and say, is this person likely to be admitted to hospital in the next month if we do not intervene on thing X, Y, or Z? If so, we move ahead. If not, we defer and keep a watchful eye. And so we've kind of used that as a really kind of basic fundamental, what's our best guess? Um, to try to guide who needs to come in, who doesn't. I, w I have to give such a shout out to our nurses. They are getting hammered with calls um, from patients either worried about COVID, um, and then they get a lot of those, or trying to manage remotely some of the um, cardiac patients. So there's been a lot of telephone visits. I did clinic yesterday and this morning via telephone of managing things um, helping with symptoms, adjusting medications, it, you know, the more information the patient has in front of them, the better. But we are definitely still bringing in people who need to be brought in. Um, so for the patients who have a blood pressure cuff at home, who can tell you their weight, um, if you need them to swing in and get labs, they can do that. If um, we've debated how much value there is in swing in, get an echo, and then leave versus swing in, get echo, and get seen, and we're doing a case-by-case -case discussion of those types of things. So we really are trying to apply some common sense parameters because if we don't, we don't want them to get admitted, right? So, right, right. Because that's definitely something to avoid. So if we think we can do the AFib ablation and keep them out, if we can do the TAVR and keep them out, mitroclip, heart failure management, whatever it might be, we carry on. We are carrying on with transplants um, and any other emergent surgeries that arise, we do. But so we're doing like uh, sometime, we'll do endocarditis. We've got an endocarditis patient right now who's going to get an operation, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's a really nice metric, isn't it? The, the idea of the is this patient likely to be in hospital within one month if we don't do X, Y, or Z? Um, that's a really, yeah. it focuses the mind pretty well. It does. It makes it a lot easier than trying to like, oh, I don't know, how sick are they? How sick are they not? So right. it helped with procedures, but it also helped the clinicians look and say, huh, well, you know, what is the balance here? And for some of the heart failure patients, it's real clear that they need to come in and get seen. So yeah. you do it. Yeah. Um, and, and you, you make that do. But if you can manage it remotely, you figure it out. And I think we're going to find that, um, especially with telemedicine where you can actually see the patient, um, that this, this could be a really, you know, medically culture-changing 
phenomenon in some good ways of recognizing just how much we really can accomplish um, for patients who are remote. We serve a huge geographic area. Having this all up and running when it's all said and done, I think is going to allow us to serve an even broader population than we have to this point because we'll know how to do it. Yeah, and people will be used to doing it and patients will be set up. I mean, I think that's yeah. the message we're getting here in the UK as well. The National Health Service t traditionally has not had the most amazing IT uh, successes and often doctors mm -hmm. are not super interested in, in getting into that area, but we're having to do it and people are finding that actually it's pretty good and not too bad and uh, certainly better than bringing a patient who doesn't really need to be here uh, to the hospital uh, where there may be an issue with yeah, getting infected. Exactly. Yeah, how do you think this is all going to play out? If you had a, <laughs> if you had a best guess, Karen? Um, you know, so I'm I, I live in the uh, I tend to be my group of faculty group. Well, I'm the rainbows and unicorns person. Everything is always I'm inherently <laughs> optimistic, um, and so but it's been relatively getting into this like hope for the best, prepare for the worst thing is something that's fairly easy to embrace. Watching this, I think we've seen this little bit of a plateau right now in the last couple of days of admissions. But I'm not, you know, we keep talking about this of, are we going to be Italy or are we going to be South Korea? And you just don't know yet. So my suspicion is that at least in the Seattle area, we did get going on a lot of the social distancing things fairly early, but not early enough is going to be my guess. And that we're going to see a surge in the next week or two of COVID positive illnesses. And that a chunk of those are going to be, we've already seen it a bit in cardiac patients who have cardiac issues. Um, so, you know, what do you do about the patient in complete heart block who um, comes over for a pacemaker? Because that's one of the things that we have had to serve in this role is for the hospitals that are full of COVID patients, they can't do emergency cardiac procedures. So we have to step in and do that. So what does COVID look like in those patients? And it's not going to be awesome, I'm going to guess. So I think we're going to see a combination for our hospital as a quaternary academic medical center um, system that we're going to see an uptick not only in COVID, but COVID in the cardiac patient population. And we're going to learn more than we probably wanted to about the disease. I think we're going to be, I think I'm going to spend at least a couple of weeks kind of tapping on my workforce uh, in ways they're not used to. Um, and I think we'll see healthcare providers who test positive. That I have a little bit of optimism for that, um, Social distancing and other stuff started pretty early here, and the really diligent um, personal precautions uh, in, a, in the health system um, were being taken. So, so far, we have not had very many healthcare workers within UW Medicine um, test positive at all. Um, I know we're going to see more, but I'm hoping that all that diligence may preserve some workforce, but I'm not planning on it. So I think we're going to see the surge everybody's expecting in the next week or two if I just look at the math and look at the statistics uh, and I think it'll be a surge not only of patients in hospital, um, but and displacing our usual types of care and us figuring out how we're going to continue to do it, um, but also uh, an increase in the number of my providers who are out. Um, and I think what I'm keeping an eye on is right now there's an, a, just a, a truly inspiring esprit de corps. Um, but as things start getting personal, oh, my God, I was exposed to that sort of experience. Um, it's, it becomes easier to kind of not have the same esprit de corps. So I'm also trying to be ahead of how do we maintain the we're all in this together when it really starts impacting individuals in really personal ways. Um, so I'm actually, I remain optimistic. I think 
I think we'll we'll do this. Um, I think we'll get through it. Um, I hope that we do it with a minimal um, cost to of human life, of human well-being, and of emotional well-being. Uh, the financial impact is huge, um, and I'd love to hope that that gets mitigated as quickly as possible. We have so many people here who've been laid off because the restaurants were closed um, and the bars and that sort of thing. Mm. So I'm optimistic we're going to get through it, but I don't think it's going to be easy, and I don't think it's I don't think it's overblown. I don't think this is much ado about nothing. Um, and it feels really weird. I don't know if you were a Game of Thrones person, but it definitely has that kind of winter is coming. But it like, does. When <laughs> exactly sure. is that going to be? <laughs> um, yeah. So I think it's going to be a challenge. And I think what I'm going to, what I've already found is you can have the best laid plans, but when they really get tested by something that you really have no idea what it's really going to be, uh, you got to be prepared to handle the nuances and adapt. Um, and so I think we've got a pretty adaptable folk, group of folks. But we we'll will see. see, I guess. Hopefully yeah, exactly. it ain't as ugly as it looks like. Yeah, well, um, I've taken up plenty of your time, Karen. It's been fantastic to to talk to you. And certainly you've got some pearls in our conversation, which I will pull out into some show notes for other people, other health systems that may be a little bit behind you guys uh, can think about. Certainly I, I really... Uh, I think that's very valuable at how you deal with the rest of the, the normal day job, right? Because those patients are not going to go away uh, and still need attention. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, yeah. Brilliant. Well, yeah, it was, that was, I think, if I was going to take away that is, mm. is, like, really prepare yourself, but prepare yourself for, you know, how do you deal with the normal things that you can't admit? And how do you, if you're the cardiac hospital that's going to absorb everybody else's cardiac business, how are you going to do that? Um, is one little piece, because it's so easy to get tied up in the, the what does a covid positive patient look like but right. what do all the rest of the patients look like who now need your care right uh, is a different beast absolutely well thanks so much for the opportunity to chat with you and i hope things go okay out there in the uk yeah well we're fingers crossed and we we're certainly keeping an eye on uh, on you guys china korea everybody else that's uh, up against this um and uh, we'll we'll do our best and certainly wish you all the very best of, uh, of luck with this great thanks and you too 